Chaos. This is San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. This is part two. In part one, we talked about the intersection of homelessness, drugs, and policy stubbornly based on ideology instead of results. It was a hoot and a riot, so go listen to that if you didn't listen to that one yet. This one, we're going to talk about some related stuff and some new stuff. So, chapter 10, Not Everyone's a Victim. In case you don't remember, the book is specifically about San Francisco and the policies that have been enacted there and what progressive policies do and why they do what they do. So in chapter 10, Not Everyone's a Victim, we talk about some of the other factors that are allegedly contributing to homelessness and try to put those in perspective. So some of the factors that are often brought up by activists are things like poverty and trauma and racism. Those things are the things that are particularly to blame for addiction and homelessness. But the author is skeptical of these explanations and outright attacks them by suggesting that even over the time period that all three of those things, poverty, trauma, and racism was supposedly declining over the course of decades, you still had homelessness increasing over that time. So his suggestion is that those are not the things feeding into addiction and homelessness. We talked about briefly in the first one how poverty isn't the determining factor when it comes to homelessness. So there's, uh, as an illustration of this, he talks about one particular person, Jabari, who was from a well-off family, you know, at least middle to upper middle class. So he didn't have money or trauma issues. There were, there were no traumatic events, you know, major traumatic events that precipitated to his homelessness or anything like that. But what would happen is that he was interested in kind of a, a criminal life, a criminal activity. He There were people around him who were drug dealers, and he saw the lifestyle of drug dealing, and he was interested in it. So he participated in it. And what would happen is that because his family had connections, because they had money, he would get in trouble for these things, but he would be be given light sentences for repeated crimes. He would do it over and over again, but he'd still get light sentences. And it was just a matter of him being interested in this life as opposed to it being traumatic or being based on poverty. So the moral of his story is that there are other factors that are likely more prevalent or more substantial than, than the ones that are often cited just as a, a blanket description of all everybody who suffers homelessness. Chapter 11 talks about the heroism of recovery. So this is about the story of recovery and how important that is. John McCorder, and we've talked about John McCorder before. He's one of the academic liberals who are willing to call out a lot of the craziness. He's uh, like vociferously anti-Trump, but he does and he's willing to, especially when it comes to race, he's willing to push back on a lot of these kinds of ideas. But so, a quote from him, the more you play the victim, the more victim you become. Victimhood changes from a problem to be solved to an identity to be cultivated. And so this is a really important idea, is that if you keep calling yourself a victim, you're more likely to be it. And if there are incentives to to be victimized or claim that you've been victimized, as as we've seen over the last few years, with certain, uh, if not Oscar, at least Razzie-worthy actors, if you play the victim, then you can get benefits, tremendous benefits from that. But even when it comes to just your identity, even if it's not on a you know national scale or you're not getting money for it, which a lot of people do, but even if you're not doing that, it still it becomes an identity to be able to cultivate. And there are other benefits too. You get better protection from accusations of wrongdoing. You get this victim signaling that is kind of like a shield so that people can't attack you in the same way. In psychology, it was found also that you more often find the dark triad personality traits within this group. They're much more common. So narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And Machiavellianism sounds cool, but uh, it's a negative thing. Part of the dark triad. That sounds like a group of villains in a Marvel movie, the dark triad. 
But okay, so these three personality traits are more common within a victimization group. There was a study where in people who are more likely to agree with victimized statements, you know, if they were prompted to say, how much do you agree with this particular statement? And it was a statement that was indicating victimhood. They were more likely to lie about the results of a coin flip. And this is where you get some kind of benefit. You get money or something like that if you get the coin flip correct. And you get nothing if you get it incorrect. So they were more likely to lie when they, if they agreed with victimized statements in general more often. They were more likely to lie about the results of the coin flip. They were also more likely to boast of victim status when they were accused of something. There's one woman who was in recovery, Vicki Westbrook. She talked about how she hates it when people say, I just want to help. You know, this kind of uh, passive participation in the recovery process where it's just like, I'm standing on the outside and I'm here to help, but I'm not going to do much of anything else. She suggests that it lets people off the hook from their recovery. And one way she put it that I thought was uh, fascinating is, yes, they need to eat and have clothes, but do they just do that until they die? Is that the point? So a lot of these kinds of programs, they'll say, okay, we're just going to give you food and we're going to give you new clothes or whatever. We're not going to be critical or say anything about your addictions or anything else bad that you're doing, but here are some food, here are some clothes. And this person who's going through recovery specifically talked about how that is a terrible posture to have to somebody who's in recovery. The addiction feel itself does a lot of damage. One activist who is uh, defending the addiction field said that those criticisms come from people who didn't live it. But as we heard from, you know, Vicki Westbrook and others, that is not the kind of help or treatment or support that they actually need. So discipline has declined just in general. And this part of the book, he talks about kind of a broader understanding culturally of where discipline has gone. Talks about the overprotective mother trope and how it all started with Emile, Rousseau's Emile, that suggested that humans were born good and people just need to get out of the way of the, the good humans to come into the world and they will just be wonderful. And then we have things like participation trophies and in the midst of all this overprotective mothers and the Emile idea and participation trophies, you have higher rates of depression. And you have men who are taking much longer to grow up. They're pushing off uh, major life activities you know, further and further down the line. And you have uh, less self-directed risk-taking. And he suggested the coddling, this kind of coddling, was one a major factor in leading to the opioid epidemic that we're struggling with now. And there's a suggestion, and uh, it's a concept that I think I brought up earlier about collateral psychological damage. So one of the suggestions that you get from all of these things that are collaborating together is that it's not your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to eat better or exercise. And so much of that with body positivity and all those, those kinds of things and uh, the criminal justice efforts that are going on all over the country. It's just the collateral idea is that it's not your responsibility to do any of these things. And so that would contribute to the idea of it's not your responsibility to get off drugs or not be on drugs in the first place. There was one uh, reference to a woman in, it was in another country. So there was this boy, this uh, school child, and she worked at the school. Her name was Anandita. And the boy comes back to school and she confronts him and says, where the hell were you yesterday? You missed school yesterday. And he says that his mother died and she scolds him. And so this is cited in this book as a kind of moment of extreme harshness. You know, his mother had just passed away, you know, like the day before, and he didn't show up to school for that reason. But the Anandita scolds him and says, it doesn't matter. You have to get to school. That's that's what you have to be doing right now. And this is as a segue to suggest that great social workers are both loving and tough. They're not just one or the other. 
And the problem is not setting the bar too high, but it's setting it too low. There was one method of attack therapy where it was described as calling you on your shit, whatever it happens to be you. They are willing to do that. They're going to call you on it so that you can't get away with it and do more damage to yourself. And the need is for tough love in general when it comes to these kinds of recoveries. Chapter 12 deals with homicide and legitimacy and references George Floyd and goes through just a litany of disparities. And this is something that drives me crazy. But so police are more likely to use physical force. They're more likely to stop and more likely to wrongly convict black suspects. So these are cited. Uh, there's just a list of disparities that goes through this. And I remember reading the paper on the physical force one. This is one of the few disparities when Roland Fryer at Harvard, he did studies when all the stuff was going on to try to figure out. He was trying to show, you know, the disparities. But so the one distinction that was significant was between use of physical force when it came to the races. Now, uh, I can't remember in that study if he specifically controlled for physical resistance, but those things would be based on, you know, just self-reporting of the police officers. Obviously, every police officer is going to report that there was physical resistance if they used force on somebody. So you don't know how uh, useful those are going to be to try to determine this stuff. But that's the one disparity that, that held up. But Fryer found no difference when it came to the shootings. When he controlled for the proper, like, uh, violent crime rates, whether the, not just general violent crime rates, but whether the suspect at the time was suspected of violent crime, then the disparities disappeared. And the problem is that obviously disparities don't equal discrimination. This is something that people use constantly. If there's any kind of disparity, this is what the entire Democrat Party seems to be based on right now. If there's any disparity, they see it as discrimination, unless it's between Asian and white or Asian and anybody else. Then they don't see it as discrimination because that would uh, tank the narrative. But what they're actually doing when it comes to just these broad swath disparities is they're smuggling in a million theories about a million people all at one time. The burden isn't on, it's just like when I used to argue with people that I don't know when it comes to God or arguments for God or whatever. They would say things like, well, you can't prove that he didn't do it. So they would say, oh, it's based on racism and you can't prove it's not racism. So therefore it must be racism. It's that kind of a thing. It's that kind of an argument. And the burden is on the person who's making an argument, who's trying to explain some kind of phenomena. The burden is on that person to make it a legitimate argument and demonstrate why it's true, not on the other person to now go through and have to pick apart the thing that you made. Like, you don't just get to win by default. Anyway, there's a, a reference to the alarming white supremacy in police departments. And I can't remember the specific context of him saying that, but that's one of those insane blanket claims that is completely unsupported, that is incredibly annoying. <laughs> and uh, it just seemed like in this particular chunk, in, in this chapter, it was doing more work to agree with a lot of the, the precepts that are put forward. Because later it talks about how racism persists, but it has improved statistically and that it's not the dominant motive of the things that are happening. Like, you have to, the point is that you have to demonstrate that these things are happening for that reason. If somebody just vaguely says that racism persists, you have to demonstrate, you have to say, this is where it persists. This is These are the people who are the perpetrators of it. You don't just get to say, oh, vaguely, I, I think there's somebody somewhere who's doing a racist thing right now, so therefore my theory is correct. And say just that it's not the dominant motive. How do you know that it's any motive? How do you know that it has any animating principle within any person who's engaging in any of these acts anywhere? You have to be able to demonstrate that. You have to be able to go to each person and say, oh, well, this is your motivation. It's not that easy. But uh, he suggests thereafter that you are more likely to share videos that support a narrative. You know, those are the ones that are more likely to be shared than ones that don't support a narrative. So there's a bias in that. 
So then he goes on to talk about Chaz and Chop and the Summer of Love and how we had people in Seattle and Portland who just carved out chunks of the city and said these are now autonomous zones and how the mayor there, and I think it was Seattle, the Seattle mayor, talked about how it was 98% white people doing all the evil in Chaz. Eventually, two ended up dead. There was a shooting there, but it took uh, you know more than an hour for the paramedics to be let in. So it was it was a whole thing. And the author suggests that we should be focused on all homicides, not just police homicides. And just like I said above, this is another one of those things where it's the God of the Gaps racism, where if there's any kind of disparity, then it must be racism. That's not how argument works. That's not how reality works. You have no idea that that's the causal relationship there. So it's really frustrating when that comes up. And now somebody is doing some kind of a massive tree work. They're deforesting next to my house right now. What movie was that? Is the Avatar movie? They did a bunch of that. They deforested a lot of stuff. What were they? Oh, Unobtainium? Is that what they after in that stupid movie? Oh my god, I hated that movie. Looked great. <laughs> Speaking of brain dead, when the laws against the laws, this is chapter 13. So the, the evidence suggests that it wasn't that drugs attracted violence to different areas. It was that violence attracted the drugs. So areas that were already violent ended up attracting more drugs. And homicides shot up after civil rights, which, you know, takes away the racism angle in general. Poverty, oppression, and unemployment aren't the things that are driving violence. They're not correlated with violence in, in these places. But the crisis of legitimacy may have contributed to soaring homicide rates. So generally, when you have trust in government fall, you have a higher homicide rate. When you have trust in government rising, then you have a lower homicide rate. And so whatever the reason for the rise or decline in the trust in government, that would be something to look into when it comes to homicides. The Portland Autonomous Zone, it was erected because this one family was being evicted from their homes, as far as I understand it. And the police, the Portland police could not get them out. <laughs> they, they were physically incapable of ending the Autonomous Zone. And it only ended because the city negotiated to pay for the black family's home. And then a bunch of soft on crime policies. And I love this because there are uh, videos that I'll see on kind of a regular basis in places like San Francisco and in Portland where a bunch of the residents are crying and whining about all the, the increase in crime and how there are a bunch of people camping out on the street and that sort of thing. And you just have to point them right back at who they voted for. There's a reference to Chester Boudin, who is uh, no longer the DA of San Francisco. He was recalled. I think there was an election. He was recalled, so he's not there anymore. But he didn't want any jails. He wanted to close jails, despite the fact that it's it's roughly 4% of the inmates that were there for drug crimes, which is always the talking point. It's just the nonviolent offenders uh, who are just there for having a weed are making up the majority of the prison system and it's not the case at all not even close so tom wolf he was another he was one of the people who's like a, an activist now but on the other side he was talking about how the people who are homeless are drug users they're not desperate people they're not the same the kind of people that you imagine being the homeless 85% of the shoplifting that's done is done by organized crime. So it's not a bunch of desperate people trying to get bread. It's done by organized crime. So when you have lax laws when it comes to this, then that's who you're encouraging. You know, these kinds of predators as opposed to uh, letting the people off who just are, are stealing loaves of bread for their family. So what we need is swift and certain and fair consequences. That's what's necessary to have, you know, a healthy polity in this circumstance. Chapter 15, it's not about the money. 
This one uh, invokes moral foundations theory and talks about how progressives put above everything else caring and fairness. They also like liberty, but caring and fairness are the big ones. They reject sanctity, authority, and loyalty as moral foundations. But they only define fairness for victims, not oppressors. So anybody they deem an oppressor, they don't care about fairness relative to them. Progressives psychologically are more anxious, neurotic, and unhappy. Some researchers have attributed this to their secularism. They're much more likely to be secular. Importantly, compassion, altruism, and love create a blind spot to reality. And this is something that we saw way back when when we read uh, Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, was it? The Yale psychologist where he talked about how dangerous empathy is as a motivating reason to do something, try to help somebody, that it creates blind spots for um, being able to see things as they actually are. Chapter 16, Love Bomb. That is not an 80s band that is about just lavishing people with affection is not the way to fix them or help them fix themselves. So it references Jim Jones, the prominent cult leader, and how when you enter a cult, the first time you enter a cult, they just shower you with affection. They, they lavish you with all this praise and happy talk. And, and this is something that's used by cults. It's called the love bomb that's used by cults to make people dependent on emotionally and psychologically uh, their cult. And this kind of uh, approach is much more prevalent in progressive areas. And one of the big problems here is that homelessness, as defined, includes everyone. It, it just mixes all the people with mental illness or who are poor or who are drug addicted. All those people are just mixed together, even though they have much different reasons for being where they are. And there will be much different approaches to be able to help those people. And then the author talks about just being in San Francisco and uh, all the encounters that he had with people who are homeless or suffering from mental illness and how common it was. This is ridiculous how often he said that he ran into these kinds of people. Where I am, I live in a place that has zero of that. This is something that happens on a regular basis just outside his office. But what happens is that you're constantly normalizing aberrant behavior right up to the limit of the law. So all this aberrant behavior that they engage in, whether it's screaming or camping out or defecating in public or whatever, all the aberrant behavior that you would normally see chastised and reproached and removed, all that is being normalized. Chapter 17, it's a leadership problem. So in, from 2010 to 2020, homelessness rose 31% in California, but declined 19% in the rest of the United States. Governor Newsom pointed to this project Homeless Connect. He said it was hugely successful, despite everything getting worse when it comes to homelessness. And Newsom has been doubling down on the same policies that haven't worked for years. There are six reasons that progressive policies ruin cities. They divert funding from shelters to permanent supportive housing, which results in less shelter space, which is less efficient, less effective in housing the homeless. They defend the right of people they characterize as victims to camp and break laws. So this is the kind of one-sided, it's just love, it's not tough love. So anybody they characterize as a victim, they get to camp and they can break laws and they're not supposed to be punished for it. They intimidate experts, policymakers, and journalists with accusations of hatred for the poor, for people of color, and for the sick, and claiming that it will result in violence if you keep criticizing them. They reduce penalties for shoplifting, drug dealing, and public drug use. They prefer homelessness and incarceration for addicted and mentally ill individuals. And their ideology blinds them to harms of the harm reduction policies that they use in attributing the problems to poverty and the like, as opposed to what the real problems are. So how do they manage power in these places for so long, even though they keep screwing up? There are shifts in parties and demographics. That's one of the big ones that we saw really early on. 
you have people who are disgusted with the policies. They they move out of these places so that progressives are able to consolidate power in these places. And just in places like California and Washington, you had mil- military families leave. And the right simply says less government and lower taxes. But the right needs to have clear answers on what to do instead of just abdicating the responsibility. And I, I mean, this is one of those things that it's kind of a tough pill to swallow, but it is something that you have to do. I'm extremely suspicious now of any kind of government entity or agency trying to do anything to try to help. But the right has been kind of abdicating its responsibility for a long time now. Chapter 18, Reasonability First. Leaders should know better by now. You know, all the things that haven't worked over the course of their careers and everything that has been studied and done so far, leaders should know better when it comes to what works and what doesn't. There's a difference between addicted and poor and mentally ill. Those things have to be treated differently as categories when it comes to the homeless. The city is sacred. It's where people flourish most. People used to follow the law because it was a shared standard that everybody followed the law and that's just what you did. But recently people have advocated different approaches based on race. So the law applies differently to you depending on your skin color. It's not the money. It's not a matter of money because San Francisco spends more per capita per homeless than anywhere else and it doesn't work. So Schellenberger suggests that Californians deserve public order. He wants to kill open drug areas, treat people based on the MLK precept, you know, by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And it references this organization called the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, supposedly doing a lot of this kind of work. So that's the book. That's the whole book, you know, beginning to end. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to use this half of the podcast because they are literally using a giant evil anti-environment machine to chop down our beautiful trees outside right now. And I don't know. I don't know when this was scheduled. I don't know why it's so loud, but uh, that's what they're doing. So the analysis, you know, political books feel like a gallop through an army. (laughs) It's like you get glancing blows on a hundred different combatants or concepts, and that's all you're getting out of it. And I get it, you don't want an Old Testament on every issue, but we did, we talked about a new standard in some book, The Parasitic Mind, and I can't remember what that standard was called, but there's some new standard for being able to make arguments about things, and I can't remember what it was called. Whatever the case, there's nothing philosophically mind-blowing, and there were some annoying parts of it, but it was important for kind of terra firma understanding of what's going on policy-wise. You know, big takeaways are that tough love is better for everyone. Stop coddling. The more you play the victim, the more victim you become. You know, from John McOrder, I mean, that's a very important concept. You can talk yourself into becoming a victim. The dark triad, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy being present in people who are more likely to, you know, use victim narratives and being more likely to lie just in general. I mean, that explains so much about our current situation. Just in general, them being more likely to lie about things. Big picture wise, uh, Hanlon's razor, you should have heard this by now, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. And actually, Goethe wrote something similar in his Sorrows of Young Werther, and this was... But so what uh, Goethe said was, Misunderstandings and lethargy perhaps produce more wrong in the world than deceit and malice do. At least the latter two are certainly rarer. And it's generally correct. It's generally true. It's more likely to be stupidity on the aggregate than it is to be malice. But I think we can, we have reached a point where you can start attributing malice to a lot of people. The global elites are not bumbling into supply and energy shortages. They're not just bumbling into it. This is something they're deliberately doing. 
local DAs are not accidentally releasing criminals who are going to be violent. And we just saw another one. There's another one who's a career criminal who should have been in prison, but multiple times it was taken easy on this person. They went and killed somebody. But you can attribute stupidity to the rank-and-file activists. So the, the random people on Twitter, the kinds of people who even become activists for these things, you know, the, especially the young people who don't know any better and know nothing about the subject, those are just useful idiots. You know, it's an army of useful idiots with no other means to define themselves. I mean, we've got the most pronounced vacuum, meaning vacuum in history right now. So people have this pent-up desire for something motivating and therefore are overcommitting to whatever they have and compensating with greater emotional involvement. So anyway, yeah, the people who are in power, malice, almost certainly malice. The people who are not are almost certainly useful idiots who can be turned around at some point. So anyway, that's this episode, and that was San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. This is the second book that we've read of his. And next is going to be Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. Next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to have an important article, actually, that we're going to talk about hopefully next Tuesday. But otherwise, I hope all is well. I'll see you on the next one. Stupid trees. Stupid trees.